Welcome to the Sabbath School Rescue Podcast with your hosts, Buster Swoops and Michael Campbell. Today, we have a bonus episode featuring Jonathan Gardner, a PhD candidate from the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. As we study the book of Isaiah this quarter, Jonathan breaks down the Assyrian Empire and how it affects how we view the book of Isaiah. Thank you for joining us for this bonus episode as we see the Assyrian Empire through the eyes of archaeology. The Sabbath School Rescue Podcast is hosted by Michael Campbell and Buster Swoops at Southwestern Adventist University. We love learning and sharing God's Word, and together we have 18 years of pastoral experience, and now we have the privilege to dig deeper into this study. So I guess we should welcome everyone to a special bonus episode of the Sabbath School Rescue Podcast with uh, your hosts, Buster Swoops and Michael Campbell. And we have a special and honored guest with us today. And we're going to let Michael Campbell introduce our, our honored guest. Yeah, I'm just really delighted. We had John on one of our Facebook Sabbath School uh, Rescue Live uh, events that we had uh, earlier uh, last year. And uh, Jonathan Gardner is a PhD student at uh, Trinity Seminary, which is just outside of um, uh, Chicago. And he is finishing up uh, his coursework and moving towards his comprehensives. And we're just delighted he's working on archaeology in the Old Testament. So as we were looking through the Sabbath school lesson, we're like, man, this guy, this is like his passion. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. I am. I'm thrilled to be here. And I have really, really enjoyed this this quarter Sabbath school uh, because Isaiah and the backgrounds of Isaiah is really kind of my area of specialty dealing with the Neo-Syrian Empire and Sennacherib. Uh, so I've done a lot of work with Isaiah. I've done a lot of work with the, the historical geopolitical backgrounds around it. And so this is this is truly an honor and, an ex- and exciting for me to be able to sit here and share with you guys and talk with you guys about a lot of the backgrounds that uh, the Bible doesn't necessarily give us, it kind of assumes a, 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 its audience has a certain level of knowledge that maybe we don't have now. And so uh, there's a lot of context for it's a lot of the stuff going on in Isaiah that uh, we don't get from the Bible itself. And so we delve into the history around it. It, yeah. it really helps clarify some things and, and bring some things to light. Well, before okay. we get started, John, um, I want to just begin with a more personal question. How, how did you get so excited about archaeology in the Old Testament? Just in a nutshell, tell us why, why, why are you passionate about this? Well, there's, there's several inspirations, I think. Uh, probably the, the biggest inspiration comes from the greatest person I've ever met in my life, which was my grandmother, uh, Nanny Olson or uh, Mildred Olson. And uh, she was a missionary in Lebanon for about 20 years, I think, or around that, or in the Lebanon, Iraq, in that, that area. And she brought back a ton of artifacts with her, uh, legally, at least I hope so. And, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I always saw them around the house, um, and she would tell us stories about that. And she had a passion for history. I've always loved history. Uh, and then my first, actually, my first international trip was she took uh, me, my sister, my parents to Israel, and that was kind of my first, first taste. Uh, so a lot of my inspiration comes from her and the things that she introduced me to. And then uh, when I was at Southern, I went on an excavation with Michael Hazel and realized that there is nothing in the world I'd rather be doing than getting up at 4.30 in the morning to go <laughs> dig in 90 degree weather and get covered in sweat and dirt and 
find nothing. Um, <laughs> it sounds awful, but it, you know, it, it, there's, you know, archaeology one of those things you either love it or you hate it. And I loved it and have been hooked on it ever since. And, and I'm just fascinated by the exploration of the past and especially for how much it, it illuminates the Bible and makes it come alive, makes a lot of things that are confusing or sometimes even disturbing makes so much more sense when they're placed in their proper context. You know, I would like to hover around there quickly because the reason why we're doing this special bonus episode is because we want to accentuate everything that's in this awesome quarter. Uh, and some, the average person that might be sitting there will think, oh yeah, archaeology, this is kind of nice. But, but tell us some of the ways that archaeology enhances the, the narrative of the Bible, but also the, the true narrative of the Bible, I should say. Yeah, well, I think that's kind of a large part what we're going to be talking about uh, mostly for the rest of the of this episode is uh, we're going to talk about how the 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 history of the Neo Assyrian Empire uh, that we that kind of is like this background shadowy figure that keeps popping up through Kings, through Isaiah, some of the other prophets. Like you mm-hmm. hear about these guys, and they're kind of like this this boogeyman off in the background, <laughs> but they have a tremendous amount of impact. On the develop on the history of Israel and Judah, I mean, they end the history of Israel, um, both as well as actually a significant literary impact as well. And so there's a lot of these threads of the Neo Assyrian Empire that are that are woven through Isaiah, uh, as we're going to talk about later. The invasion of Sennacherib, uh, which is actually this this week's uh, lesson, is, is centered around the invasion of Sennacherib in 701 BC. That is the central pivotal event on which the entire book of Isaiah hinges. There's a reason it's in the middle. <laughs> um, and so Sennacherib's history, what led up to that invasion, why this all happened, um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the background there that, again, the Bible doesn't tell us, but when we understand it, it's going to change a lot of how we read a lot of, uh, lot of the passages in Isaiah. Um, just a preview of coming attractions, we're going to, you know, as we're going to talk about the, the oracles against the nations that we talked about last week. And I think the week before, like Babylon or uh, the Philistines or the Moabites, the Edomites, these are not oracles against Israel or against Judah's enemies. They're against Judah's allies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're going to talk about a parallel story from second Kings 16 with Ahaz and this random altar that shows up and why Isaiah was so adamant that Ahaz not uh, go to Tiglath-Pileser III, uh, the king of Assyria, why he should not go to him for help against Aram and Israel. Mm. Um, that there is serious theological implications uh, to that that are, are foundation-shaking for the identity of the people of Judah. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Right, I'm ready to dive in. How about you, Michael? Absolutely. I, you know, and I'm kind of my, my initial question is for, and I think a lot of our listeners, I mean, how do we know this story about Assyria? Obviously we got bits and pieces in the Bible, but um, John, help us out. How, how, what, give us that, that picture of what's going on. Obviously the allies that, you know, here's, they're the audience that, that are being warned, but fill us in with a little bit more of that picture and how we know. So how we know is a wonderful, wonderful invention called cuneiform, which is the writing system. It's not a language, it's the writing system of, uh, of the people of Mesopotamia. And it's, a, it's, it's called cuneiform, because it basically means it's a wedge or triangle language. And how it worked is 
uh, Mesopotamia doesn't have much in the way of trees, and it doesn't have much in the way of papyrus. What they do have a lot of is mud. And so what they did is they would they developed a writing system on clay and they take a reed, um, a reed, they cut it off, make a stylus out of it, and they would just impress it in the mud with these these triangles. And it's a very fascinating, also murderously difficult language, a writing system to learn. I know I can read uh, if someone else does the hard work of transliterating the cuneiform into uh, Latin characters, I could read it, uh, but I can't read the cuneiform, at least not yet. Um and, you know, there's hundreds of signs that you would have to know. But the upshot of that is, is that when they put it on this clay, clay hardens, and most importantly, clay lasts. And this is what's different between Israel, or between Mesopotamia versus Israel and Egypt, uh, where they used alphabetic scripts, or um, uh, in some cases, hieroglyphs, even the Egyptians had their own uh, kind of shorthand for writing a papyrus. And papyrus doesn't last. Uh, there are some instances where it does, uh, like the Dead Sea Scrolls or desert areas of Egypt. But for the most part, papyrus doesn't last. And so it disintegrates very quickly unless it's an exceptionally dry climate, uh, which most of Egypt uh, or the where the inhabited parts of Egypt, ancient Egypt and most of Israel, this surprises a lot of people, are not actually that dry. <laughs> uh, they can get pretty wet. So those those texts don't last but because the mess the assyrians and the babylonians wrote on clay clay does last and so we have literally hundreds of thousands if not millions of these clay tablets that preserve the history and now that we've deciphered the the writing system we're able to read and we're still going through it, these things uh something else uh, a later assyrian king named ashurbanipal collected thousands and thousands of these tablets in a library and it's called Ashurbanipal's Library, which has been found. And it was actually found in the 1800s, and we're still deciphering texts from it um, because there are just so many. Uh, and so with, with all these Assyrian kings who also had a, a literary culture where they would write down their version of events, heavily biased, heavily propagandistic, but still their version of events, and they wrote it on a durable material that lasts – so that's how we know of it because we have their texts uh, because of the uh, because of the medium that they wrote on, and it's also why I'll never forgive Moses and everyone else who decided to not go with cuneiform for writing their stuff in Israel because we don't have their texts and it's, it's most unfortunate. I wish they they had written on clay, even though I understand why papyrus is so much more convenient. It's just not convenient for me. So that's how we know. Um, I can remember was there a. I think there was a second part of that question, if I remember correctly, but I forgot it. <laughs> Michael, was there a second part to your question? Well, no, I, I, I just, th I think you got it in terms yeah, of I how thought, do we know. I and say, I think he covered it. That, that big picture, you know, obviously um, Assyria is there. I, I was just trying to think what that was, but yeah, I mean, obviously they're a powerful empire. So I guess kind of fill us in on Assyria. We, we've been studying the Bible, but now we need to know about Assyria Tell us about that geography and, and right. that wider context we need to know. All right. So let's, let's just give a, a brief history of Assyria. Uh, so I'm going to start way back, um, way, way back with the Middle Assyrian period. I'm not going to talk about the Old Assyrians because they're doing their own thing. and It's not really related. So uh, just I'm going to give you kind of uh, – so there's going to be – I'm going to probably go run through quite a few names and dates. Don't – worry about them too much, but I want to give you kind of some biblical dates uh, as kind of reference points. So 
1300 BC, that's about Exodus conquest time. Okay. 1000 BC, that's about David. Um, 700 BC is Isaiah and Hezekiah. 586 BC is the final destruction of Jerusalem. So that kind of, you know, just kind of keep those kind of key markers in your head as, and as kind of just general framework period is kind of a general framework. So let's start with some, the, the basic geography of Assyria. And this is helpful for those listening. If you, if you're listening on your computer, uh, just kind of Google maps this. Uh, but there are three big, there are kind of three big cities um, that form what I call the Assyrian triangle and others call it too. It's actually not original. I mean, I should make that point clear. Um, there's the city of Asher, which is the original city of Assyria and something else to keep in mind. Uh, the name Assyria actually is the Greek form of the word Asher. Asher is the name of a city. It's the name of a hill. It's the name of a God, the chief God of the Assyrian pantheon. And it's the name of the people themselves. So it's kind of all based on the city of Asher. And Asher was situated on the major trade route from Afghanistan all the way to modern Turkey. And so it became a very wealthy trading city. So that's, that's one key city. Up to the north, up the Tigris River to the north, if you go look at a modern map of Iraq and find the city of Mosul, Mosul is built around the, the ruins of Nineveh. And so that's kind of the next major city in the Assyrian Triangle. And then you go east and a little bit south, and you find this, the modern city of Arbil uh, in the ancient time known as Arbella, uh, also near a village called Galgamila, which is rather important for those who know of Alexander the Great. Um, that's kind of the other point of this triangle. So it's this, this Assyrian, it's the Assyrian triangle uh, on the east side of the Tigris River that forms kind of the heartland of Assyria. Now, around the time of the Exodus and conquest, so starting around 1300 BC, this is the first time where the Assyrians begin to expand outwards and they conquer, they go across the Tigris river into the region called the Jazeera, which is the Northern uh, in between the rivers part of Mesopotamia. So between the Tigris or between the Tigris and the Euphrates uh, North kind of North towards Turkey, that's called the Jazeera. And that's, it's very open, very rich uh, farm and pasture land. And the Assyrians started moving out and conquering that. And they, they expanded to a quasi-empire, or at least a large kingdom, from about 1300 BC to about 1050 BC. So just before David takes over. And that's not by accident, by the way. Um, and some, a little fun fact about the, the Middle Assyrian kingdom is that they were the ones who ended the Hittite empire. Um, they sacked and destroyed the Hittites as in their conquest outwards. But around 1050 BC, they start to collapse in on themselves and retreat back to this, this Assyrian triangle, the heartland. Again, that's, it's not an accident that David and the kingdom of uh, United Monarchy of Israel thrives in this period with the Assyrian Empire declining. Also, the Egyptian Empire is declining. Really, everybody's empire is falling apart. <laughs> this lasts for about 150 years or so. And then around 883 BC, uh, a guy by the name of Asher Narsipal II takes the throne and he starts building the empire back out. And this is when I consider the beginning of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. There are some people who will date it later, some people date it a little bit earlier, but around 883 is when I, I and many others date the beginning of the Neo-Assyrian Empire with Asher Narsipal II. He expands outward, he conquers, he conquers, and he runs a kind of mafia-style empire. Hmm. So what he does is he doesn't 
set up garrisons. He doesn't do a whole lot of deportation. He's not putting in Assyrian governors in, in territories he conquers. What he does is he takes his army, he shows up, beats the people up, kills a lot of them, um, and then takes all their stuff and then tells them that they have to now pay him protection money. Of course, protecting them against himself. But um, And if they don't, then he'll come back and beat them up and take all their stuff again. And But for the most part, he leaves the local rulers, the local institutions, the local people basically in charge with their own stuff. They just have to keep paying him money. Okay. So it's basically a, a, an international racketeering scheme. And that's what he does. <laughs> and he, he, so he says that he conquers this big territory, but he's not really changing a lot. He's just going out, siphoning off resources back to the heartland. Um, interestingly, he moves the capital from uh, uh, Asher, uh, which should this point have been outgrown, moves it to Kalhu or Nimrud as it's uh, uh, in the modern called uh, modern times. He dies, his son Shalmaneser III comes to the throne, and Shalmaneser III is the first Assyrian that really starts interacting with Israel. And by Israel, I mean the northern kingdom. He doesn't touch Judah. Now, interestingly, neither of these episodes are in the Bible, uh, but uh, in his records on a big black obelisk that's called the Black Obelisk, um, he records uh, two encounters he has with, with kings of Israel. The first is against Ahab, who is part of this massive alliance between Israel and several Aramean kingdoms, uh, Byblos, Tyre side, and kind of the Phoenician kingdoms on the coast. They all see Shalmaneser. He's marching south and west towards them. And they all get together and band together to stop him. And they fight this massive battle, uh, one of the largest battles in ancient history, at Karkar in 853 BC. According to Shalmaneser, he wins a great victory. And he, it's such a great victory that he doesn't come back to the region for about 10 years. So reading between the lines, he either lost or was at the very least fought to a draw. Um, and that's, again, that's not in the Bible, but he mentions Ahab by name as one of the kings in this alliance. Um, about 10 years later, this is, so Ahab has died. Um, Jehu is actually now the king. We have Shalmaneser coming back. So we can read this in the Bible. Uh, at the end of First Kings, early part of Second Kings, there's a lot of conflict between the northern kings, kings of Israel, and the Arameans, and so this grand alliance that installed the Assyrians at Karkar now falls apart. And Shalmaneser III comes back through and picks them off one by one. And uh, we don't have a battle fought necessarily, but we have a, a picture actually of Jehu or a representative of Jehu bowing down before Shalmanes III, offering him tribute, and it's captioned Jehu. It's actually Jehu, son of Omri, or of the house of Omri, which is kind of an ironic statement, given that Jehu wiped out Omri's line. But uh, Jehu, uh, the house of Omri, which is also another term for Israel, uh, paying, and it lists all the booty that Jehu hands off to Shalmanes III. And it's got a picture of him, although it's probably not an actual accurate portrait of him. It's just kind of a stock photo or I image. Um that's a little disappointing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he looks, Jehu looks exactly like a guy from northern Iran. So it's like, wow, twins at birth and just separated. Not likely. But, um, but at any rate, um, so these are two, these are the first two instances that where Assyria and Israel interact. And again, these aren't in the Bible, but these, we have Shalmaneser's record of these happening. After Shalmaneser dies, uh, Assyria kind of stalls. They don't lose any territory, but they don't really gain any territory. They don't expand or, or conquer a bunch of other stuff. Um, 
there's actually a queen that will rule for about 10 years. Uh, her name is Shamarat. Um, uh, a Greek historian by the name of Diodorus Siculus uh, calls her Semiramis and has a whole bunch of wackadoo legends about her that are in no way historically accurate, but it's amusing nonetheless. Um, after she dies uh, and her son, who she was a regent for, really, he dies, there's about a 40-year period of decline. Uh, the Assyri there's three different sons of this last king that kind of fight for the throne, and they kind of cycle through whoever's ruling. And essentially, the Assyrian Empire collapses back to the triangle. This is about the time when Jonah takes his, his little jaunt to Nineveh with a slight detour through a whale. Um, it's th this is happening during this time of, of collapse of the, uh, or, or interlude as I call it. And so the Assyrian Empire shrinks back to the, the, the heartland, to the triangle. And at this time, Israel reaches its peak of prosperity and power. Judas begins to reach her peak. The Aramean kingdoms reach their peak. In fact, some of them cross the Euphrates into that Jazeera territory that's between the Tigris and Euphrates and set up shop there. This is not well received by the Assyrians. And it seems like everything, it seems like the big boogeyman of the Assyrian Empire is falling apart. They're going the way of the Middle Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Hittites, yada, yada, yada. And then in 745, something happens. A guy by the name of Pul, who may or may not have been related to the previous Assyrian king, who was a military commander, leads a palace coup. And he takes over, and he takes the throne name Tiglath-Pileser III. Ooh. And he brings the Assyrians back with an absolute roar. He is ambitious. He is um, a brilliant military commander. And he also has a much more intentional, strategic, imperial mind. And so there, there's, this is where a lot of other, some scholars say, this is the beginning of the Neo-Syrian Empire. Because unlike um, Shalmanes III and Ashurnarsipal, he runs a true imperial system. Okay. He, he, he really ramps up the program of deportation, uh, which is where basically the, the Assyrians would take populations from one group, move them uh, from one area, move them up to another area, take that population, move it here, and basically shuffle people around, mix them up, try to kind of um, destroy their ethnic and family ties, stuff like that, as well as um, almost industrializing certain agriculturally rich areas. And so during Tig's reign uh, in, in the really rich areas of Assyria, or of Mesopotamia. Uh, Michael, you're muted. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say for our listeners, so we're going to call him Tig from now on, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, that's what I call him. Uh, also for the listeners, um, my, uh, the, a dog I had for several years, I named Tiglath Pleaser, and I just called him Tig or that's Tiggy. Great. <laughs> um, so when I do this presentation uh, in, uh, for uh, churches and stuff like that, I always show a pig picture of my dog as, as, as what Tig looked like. Um, at any rate, so, uh, you we see this explosion of little farms and settlements and hamlets in the agriculturally rich areas of Mesopotamia. And, um, and really what he's doing is he's industrializing agricultural production. Um, and he's doing it by basically siphoning off populations from areas that he conquers. 
he he institutes uh, he's instituting in in Assyrian governors. He's building Assyrian palaces. He's putting in Assyrian institutions. He's leaving garrisons. He's building roads. He's doing. I mean, he is doing full blown imperialism uh, okay. in the areas he conquers. So, so you know, this kind of brings me a question. Uh, I have here on my notes. Isaiah seven and eight are mentioned quite a bit under Assyrian imperialism. Uh, can you tie tie that together for us a little bit? Exactly. And this is where this is where Isaiah seven eight come in is with Tiglath Pileser the third, who is mentioned both in Kings, Second uh, Kings, and in Isaiah seven and eight. So Tig is bringing the Assyrians back, and that he's reconquering all of the territory that that they had lost, including Babylon. Although he loses it, gets it back. That's a, we'll we'll discuss that in a minute. Um, so remember that the the Aramean kingdoms had started to move into Mesopotamia. And they're realizing that they're, they're going to be pretty quickly on Tig's hit list. And Israel's sitting just a little bit further south and west, realizing when they go down, we're next. And so Israel and Aram, uh, Aram Damascus specifically, they get together and they form an alliance. And they say, hey, look, it worked at Karkar. Let's do it again. Neither of us can stand up to Tiglath-Pileser on our own, but maybe together, if we, if we pull our resources, come together, we can stop him and keep our independence and keep our stuff in our heads. There's one slight problem with that, though, and that is Judah. Remember, Judah, would, Judah had nothing to do with Assyria before. Um, they had no natural resources. They weren't sitting on any major trade routes. They were of no interest to Assyria, and they still probably weren't of much interest to Assyria. Now, when Ahab went off to fight the Assyrians, he and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were super close. I mean, Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter, like, you know, and Jehoshaphat kind of did whatever Ahab told him to do. That dynamic had changed. Judah is now much more antagonistic towards Israel. Um, in a couple, of, a couple of the previous kings had even tried to fight the Israel and try to take some territory, um, kind of on the border, hadn't worked well. Israel thrashed them both times, but you know, they they at least tried. So the problem for Israel and Aram is that they can't fight the Assyrians, and have Judah attack them in the rear, because Judah's going to see all of the Israelite soldiers going north, and they're going to be like, well, shoot. I don't mind if I do st- walk in here and take all this stuff. The, their chances of beating Tig are already not great. Their chances of being Tig and having to deal with Jude in the rear, forget it. Like it's just not happening. So their alternative is they have to bring Judah into their alliance. Mm-hmm. So this is where we have the Syria Ephraimite War, which is from 735 BC to 732 ish BC. During the reign of eight, at the end of the King Jotham's reign, beginning of King Ahaz's reign, there's kind of a little bit of overlap between the two. So what likely happens is that uh, Reason of Damascus and Pekah of Israel, they send envoys to Jotham and say, hey, man, why don't you come with us to fight the Assyrians? We're all friends here. The Assyrians are scary. If we get work together, we'll stop them. And Jotham looks at them and looks at them and thinks about Tig and goes, No. Why am I going to, he's going to ignore me. 
why am I going to pick a fight with the biggest, baddest bully on the block just because you want to? At which point, Reason and Pika chuckle and say, oh, it's so adorable. You thought we were asking. You're coming with us whether you want to or not. And this is what precipitates them invading Judah. Now, about this time, Jotham dies. Ahaz, who's not a, he's not a child, but he's in his early 20s, he's left alone. He's now in sole command, and he promptly watches his armies get their butts kicked to the point that now Jerusalem seems to be under siege. He is stuck. And what I find interesting about his story is there in 2 Kings 16, it talks about he goes so far as to offer his son as a sacrifice or makes his son pass the fire, fire is the technical phrase, but basically he lights him up. So that's something that you do only when you're like absolutely desperate. There's a parallel story with uh, King of Moab named Mesha who does the same thing when Israel and Judah and I think Edom are all coming and attacking him at once. And they surround his, they, they lay siege to his capital. He offers his son as a sacrifice. Everybody freaks out and goes home. And so what I see Ahaz doing is he is basically going through the Rolodex of gods, asking anyone for help. Any God, whoever, help me out. And none of them are answering, including as far as he can tell Yahweh. I mean, Yahweh has left them out to dry as long, along with everybody else. So this puts so Ahaz is Ahaz is now at the point where he is not he is not trusting in any divine power Yahweh or Kemosh Molech none of, none of them. What he does know is he can probably talk Tig into expediting his plans to come southwest towards uh, towards Israel, and that's what precipitates him going to Tig for help. Is that's his last option as far as he can tell, is I've got to go to him for help. And it does make sense. Tig could be a very, a, a great, uh, a great help. And he would definitely get reason and Pika off of Ahaz's back. But there is a problem with this. And that is uh, vassal, the idea of vassal treaties. See, we have to understand the Assyrians did never, they never had allies. They had subjects. You know, they weren't mercenaries. They were conquerors. And so it wasn't like he was paying some mercenaries to come help him out. The way he got Assyrian help was to become a vassal to the king of Assyria. And so what he does, so to do this, and we have several, we have tons of copies of these. Um, they're called these Ade or vassal treaties. And it's a treaty that you sign, uh, that you go through with, with the Assyrian king, who becomes now your, your sovereign, your overlord. And it's a very highly structured document. It starts off with a historical preamble. It gives a list of stipulations, usually that the vassal is supposed to do. We could call them a list of commandments, if you will. Um, then there invokes a series of witnesses, uh, usually the gods. Um, and then it gives a list of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because it's the exact same format as the book of Deuteronomy. And this is what the problem is for Ahaz, the theological problem, which is Ahaz already has signed a vassal treaty to Yahweh. He can't turn around and sign a vassal treaty now to the king of Assyria. You can only have, a vassal can only serve one lord, an overlord at a time. 
there are those that tried to serve more than one and it just, it never ended well. So in order for him to get Tig's help, he has to replace Yahweh with Tiglath-Pileser III. That's the theological problem. And I mean, it's a form of idolatry um, and it takes kind of a next step in that, and we read this in 2 Kings 16, where there's this, uh, Ahaz goes and meets Tiglath-Pileser. So as we know, Ahaz ignores Isaiah's advice, sends off to Tig. Tig's like, well, shoot, if you're going to pay me to do something I was going to do anyway, yeah, no problem. He comes through, wipes out Damascus in reason, literally that same year. Uh, and then uh, over the next few years, he basically conquers all of Jude, all of Israel down to the Jezreel Valley and Megiddo. Basically, Samaria is the only thing left of the Northern Kingdom by the time Tig is done. Uh, and then Samaria would be destroyed shortly thereafter. Um, so Tig, so Ahaz goes up, he meets Tig, and there's this altar that he sees at Damascus, and he sends a copy of it down to the priest at the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem and has them build this altar and kind of move Yahweh's bronze altar off to the side. Now, the thing we have to understand is a Assyrian imperial practice is that they would require that their vassals or their conquered people would stick the emblems of their gods, usually Asher and Ishtar, in the prominent positions in their temples, making the statement of, our gods are superior to your gods. You don't have to worship our gods, but you do have to make it clear that our gods are superior to your gods. That's exactly what Ahaz is doing here. He is putting an altar to Asher in the prominent position in the temple of Yahweh. It is the same as if he is planting um, the flag of Assyria. One second here. <laughs> planting the flag of Assyria in the center of the, his capital building. Um, and it, I mean, that, that's what he's doing. And so that's obviously a massive theological problem, but that's part of the requirements for being for Tig's help is that Tig's gods replace or supersede his gods and Tig now becomes the sovereign overlord instead of Yahweh. So this is the theological issue that Isaiah is trying to push back against when he is, he's wrestling, when he's telling Ahaz, don't do this, don't do this, just trust Yahweh, it's going to work out, it's going to work out. And Ahaz is like, look, man, I've already done that. I've trusted everybody's gods. No one's home. I do know that Tig, I do know what Tig can do. It's real, it's tangible, it's something I can see, feel, and touch. I'm going with it, and you know, I'll deal with the theological consequences. And in fairness to Ahaz, he never really saw a downside to it. He died long before any major repercussions came through. I mean, really the only repercussions that he would have felt is that the Assyrians did have a tendency to bleed their provinces dry. Um, so they would industrialize um, production at Ekron, a Philistine city near, uh, near Israel. We, there, we, have, we found like industrial level olive oil production, uh, these massive vats and olive oil presses. But the, the, the city of Ekron itself was clearly not prospering. And so they're producing all this work, but all the wealth is going back to the Assyrians. Um, and then, of course, there's mass deportations as well. But Ahaz skips out on that because, you know, Assyria just gets their cool stuff, which is really all they care about. And then they take a whole bunch of people from Israel and they move and they shuffle them around. That's where we get the, the 10 lost tribes. So that's 
that's what happens in Isaiah 7 and 8. That's what's going on is all of this is coming down. And the thing with this is this is this this event, Ahaz's decision to involve Tiglath Pleaser, this is kind of like that first domino that falls over that triggers the rest of the book of Isaiah and what happens that because that leads ultimately to Sennacherib's invasion of 701, which as I said is the the event. Yeah. Before we get there, John, I just want to back up for just a second. Um, deportation. We're talking about a lot of people here, aren't we? Yeah. So the estimations, and we, keep in mind that most of what we're the numbers we're getting coming from are from Assyrian royal inscriptions, which are slightly prone to exaggeration. Um, but the estimates are of about four and a half million people in about a hundred year time period are moved around. Now, I want to also be clear, and I am very much not pro-imperialism, but in this case, deportation was not always a bad thing for the deportees. One, the Assyrians were pretty particular in making sure that the deportees got to their new locations alive and healthy. We have actually a letter from a uh, Assyrian official to one of the uh, military commanders in charge of transport these deportees that's saying that that says if any of these guys get here sick it's your head literally <laughs> and the reason of course is these were these their lab they want they're wanted for their labor either as farmers or as builders a lot of the deportees were people who had uh expertises in um and some sort of artisanship uh whether again potters built uh, craftsmen whatever that were then used to build up the, the cities of Assyria or, or farm and produce the amount of food that the armies would, would need. And for a lot of the deportees, especially those who were poor, this was kind of a reset button for them. If they were, had outstanding debts, which a lot of them did, those debts were now canceled and they were given land to farm. And of course, you know, they had to send their quota, of course, off to, off to the Assyrians, but they were given land as their own to farm and basically given easy subsistence, as long as they, you know, as long as they work decently hard, they could actually have a pretty solid and good new life. We see something similar to this in uh, Jeremiah's letter to the Babylonian exiles, where he tells them to settle down, get married, build farms, have, you know, families. Like it's deportation wasn't the worst thing in the world. It was certainly a lot better than being, you know, flayed alive or impaled or having your head worn to someone's necklace and yes, these are all actual punishments the Assyrians did. I was um, say, uh, I'd say I'd, I'd take deportation over any of those. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't the worst thing in the world, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't great. You know, and there was obviously a significant amount of trauma that went along with that of being uprooted uh, and you know, losing a, part of the goal of deportation was to uh, destroy the ethnic and cultural identity of the people. So, that, you know, they don't rebel, which a lot of them did anyway. But, you know wasn't super effective in that respect, but, you know, so there is definitely some trauma, but it wasn't at the same time, it wasn't the worst possible fate one could suffer for sure. You know, uh, I'm, I'm really interested just because it's this week's lesson. Uh, take us to the siege of Sennacherib of 701. Yeah, I, I'm going to do that. I want to kind of start a little bit earlier though, um, because it's something that I think from last week's lesson that is uh, kind of something in, I think important to talk about that does set this up. Okay. Um, and that is uh, a guy by the name of Sargon II and the, and the king of Babylon that 
you know, as most of us are Adventists, we've read Isaiah 14 a million times as kind of the quintessential, this is who Satan is kind of a thing, you know, the morning star that's fallen, all of this stuff. So Tig dies. Um, I can't actually remember the year off the top of my head. Uh, and anyway, his son, Shalmaneser V, comes to the throne. And Shalmaneser reigns about three or four years. Shalmaneser is in the Bible. He is credited in some places with the destruction of Samaria. Um, other places, um, and also extra biblical sources, credit Sargon II. So, some weird stuff happens with Shalmaneser and Sargon. Um, the chronicles that we have say that Shalmaneser died randomly. Like, it wasn't expected. And there seems to be some, some funny business that went on with that. So, and it seems that Shalmaneser is doing things that weren't particularly popular. So Shalmaneser dies under suspicious circumstances and Sargon comes to the throne. Sargon is probably Tiglath-Pileser's son as well. Um, although he only mentions his, his relation to Tig once or twice in his inscriptions, which we have a lot of. Um, and Sargon's name means it's it's actually it's it's two words it's uh, Sharukun or Sharukin sorry in in Assyrian, which means the king is legitimate or the king is true. I could also be translated the king is just similar lines or the king is established. The large thinking in scholarship is that Sargon's name, which again is basically meaning means this king is legitimate. Anytime a king says he is legitimate, it is almost 100% certain he is, in fact, not. <laughs> um, and now, to be fair to Sargon, he is the second Assyrian named Sargon. And there's also, um, there's also uh, Sargon the Great, who is the first empire builder um, several thousand years earlier. Uh, and he has... It's kind of a similar origin story. He was not of royal birth. He was a, it was a servant that um, seemed to have usurped the throne and then built the Akkadian Empire. And so it's also possible that Sargon is also kind of taking his name, if it was uh, not his given name, as kind of a, a nod to Sargon the Great, although he doesn't mention Sargon the Great very much. At any rate, Sargon II comes to the throne. He finishes off Samaria. And he has a very interesting career. Um, one that is, from an Assyrian perspective, theologically somewhat problematic at times. Um, and so he kind of has a tense relationship. One of the first things he does is he deports a bunch of people from the city of Asher, who are probably political opponents of his. So he just kind of gets them out. And he actually does not spend a ton of time in Assyria. Um, something else that he does, he, he's, a, he's a brilliant military commander. I give him credit for that. Um, but he, and he, does, he, he spends most of his career actively avoiding the city of Asher, which even if it wasn't the capital at the time, it was still the religious center. That's where the main temple of Asher was. But he avoids it a lot. And um, he also builds a new city. 
Now, a new capital city, which he names after himself. Modern, the modern name for it is Khorsabad. Uh, this, the ancient name was Dur Shardokin, or the Fortress of Sargon. Now, what's interesting about this is that he builds his capital city on virgin soil. No other Assyrian king ever did that. Um, now, they would change the capital around, but they would never build it on new ground. It's just something you didn't do. But he does this. And that's a little weird. So he also um, has kind of a back and forth battle with Merodach Baladan, uh, who we know from the Bible. He's Hezekiah's good buddy. Uh, eventually, he takes, he takes Merodach Baladan out, and he takes, conquers Babylon. And he takes the title King of Babylon and spends a great deal of time in Babylon. So this is where we get to Isaiah 14. Um, and one of the questions that we should ask, I think, more is, and I want to be clear, I do think the, the, the Lucifer interpretation is correct, but there is also a real-world person that Isaiah is talking about. And I would suggest that he is talking about Sargon II. I mean, if you think about where he came from, if indeed Sargon usurped the throne of his brother, it starts off with, you know, you wanted to make your throne like the Most High. You know, I'm, I'm going to pause here for a second because you're going to you're going to rock a lot of people's world right now, but it needs to be rocked, right? Because the dual meanings, a lot of these, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, so please continue. Yeah, and I think if we understand Sargon's history, I think it'll even help make the the parallel with Lucifer even more clear. So again, we start off with you know, you wanted to make your throne like the Most High. Well, what did Sargon? likely do. And I want to be clear, we don't know for certain. He never comes out and says, yeah, I stole the throne from my brother. But that's what happened. He took the throne from his brother, whether on his own initiative or it just kind of fell to him, we're not sure. He also took the, he took the title King of Babylon. He, you know, it, you know, it's you who once laid low the nations. And this is where identifying with Merodach Baladan or any of the, the Babylonian kings that were contemporary with Isaiah falls apart because none of them were shaking the nations, but Sargon. Oh, he was shaking the nations. He, he was a very active conqueror. As we've mentioned, he finished off, he conquered Babylon. He conquered, he finished off Samaria and Northern kingdom of Israel. And so you have this, this image that matches Sargon so well of one who shakes the nation, who conquers Kings, kills Kings, destroys them. And then it talks about how, how he has fallen. And this is where things get very fascinating. In 704 BC, around the age of 60, Sargon is leading a campaign in the north against the Sumerian people, the Sumerian, not Sumerian, but Sumerian people. And he is killed in battle. No other Assyrian king that we know of for sure is killed in battle. I don't know the exact details. Um, one detail is that the Assyrian camp was overrun, so it may have been in a surprise attack. Um, but something happened where Sargon dies in battle. Not only does he die in battle, his body is never recovered, which is very important that the body is recovered and laid to rest so that the ghost doesn't become a problem. And this event in Assyrian ideology shakes them to their core because the king is supposed to always win. The king is supposed to be infallible, but you cannot in any way, shape or form spin an event where the king dies and you lose his body as the king being successful. 
So his capital city of Dursharkin, uh, his son Sennacherib takes the throne. Sennacherib's like, yep, I'm out. That place is going to be haunted. So he leaves and he moves the capital to Nineveh. And Sennacherib goes almost out of his way to avoid mentioning Sargon or any connection to Sargon, who again already had some kind of iffy relationship with the Assyrian elite, especially the religious elite. And so Sargon's rise and fall mirrors so excellently um, the picture Isaiah portrays in Isaiah 14 of, of the king of Babylon, which again, Sargon took the title king of Babylon. So he was the king of Babylon. And it kind of helps us understand this guy who was grasping for power, who seemed to have it all, suddenly getting cut down in an instant. And that how I think that, you know, I think if we meditate on that and think about that, that really does strongly encourage and emphasize and even make more clear the parallel with Lucifer and his rise and fall. Someone who wanted everything, grasped for everything, and maybe even had it for a moment, but then was cut down. And and um, uh, Jonathan, this is why archaeology is so important. I mean, you just brought up an idea that just blew my mind, but the concrete evidence is there. You know, the archaeological evidence is there, and the parallels make so much sense. So thank you for that. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> um, so now this, is lead, now, this leads up to Sennacherib. Um, so we have to keep in mind some, some, one of the issues with Isaiah is that Isaiah is not, is not in chronological order. Um, you know, even just reading the first six chapters, we get that point because Isaiah's call happens in chapter six and there's like five chapters of stuff that's happening before then. Like, wait a minute, what? Um, we're not entirely sure how the book is organized. Uh, I think maybe it's organized topically ish. Um, but one of the parts that's out of order is that for this week's lesson, I think this week's lesson, we have Hezekiah's, um, the boil that Hezekiah has where he thinks he's going to die. And Isaiah's like, yep, you're going to die. And then God changes his mind. Sun goes backwards. And then we have the Babylonian envoys come through. Hezekiah's like, hey, look at all my cool stuff. And Isaiah's like, why did you do that? Now, um, that happens actually before the Sennacherib's invasion. So, Sennacherib, so, during the uh, Merodach Baladan, who's the Babylonian king, he reigns for a little bit before Sargon kicks him out of Babylon. And then when Sargon dies, he tries to retake Babylon, which he does for a very short time. We'll get to that in a second. But Merodach Baladan has always been kind of contending against Assyria. Not kind of. He's, been always, he's kind of been the, the, the foil to the Assyrians. And he wants to take them out. And so he... And Hezekiah, who is probably by this point, we're talking about the seven tens now. So about 20 years or so after uh, Ahaz makes his deal with Tig. Hezekiah is pretty much done paying tribute to the Assyrians. And he's having issues theologically with them as his overlord. So Merodach Baladan sends his envoys. And he and Hezekiah, they put their heads together and they say, you know what? I bet if we get the entire world on our side against the Assyrians, we can take them out. And so they create a massive alliance. I'm talking Babylon, Ammon, Ammon, Edom, Moab, Byblos, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, somewhat unwillingly, admittedly, 
Egypt, everybody gets together to take on the Assyrians. And then as if a gift from heaven in 704, Sargon dies in battle. It is the perfect moment to rebel and strike. One slight hiccup. Sargon's successor, Sennacherib, happened to be very good at his job. And so this massive alliance that we have, and you'll notice a lot of those nations that I mentioned are all nations that Isaiah has his oracles against. So I, one of the themes of Isaiah is don't trust in human power, trust in Yahweh. And so when Isaiah is pre, pre, uh, having these oracles against the nations, he is telling Hezekiah, don't put your trust in them, put your trust in Yahweh. It's a critique of what Hezekiah is doing. And archaeologically, we, we can trace Hezekiah, uh, Hezekiah's efforts in preparing for the Assyrians. We have these, uh, these uniform jars with this king stamp seal on him. Thousands of them we find all over Judah. We see uh, fortifications getting ramped up like we haven't seen before in Judah's history. Like he is doing, he is going all out to prepare for this, prepare for the confrontation with Assyria. 704, Sargon dies. Sennacherib comes to the throne. Everybody rebels. Merodach Baladan comes back to Babylon. He takes over Babylon again. And Sennacherib just levels everybody. Within a year, Merodach Baladan is now back out of Babylon for good this time. Babylon is now under Sennacherib's control. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more because that, that Sennacherib's okay. relationship with Babylon is a huge deal. Babylon's taken out. Then we come to 701 and Sennacherib starts working his way down the Mediterranean coast. And it is, it's a blowout. City after city either surrenders outright, gets smashed. Um, in a couple cases, their kings just panic and just run away from Sennacherib. Sennacherib actually doesn't even have to do that much work. Like he just shows up with his army and they're like, all right, we're out. And after that, uh, there's actually one instance where all the Transjordan allies, so Ammon, Edom, Moab, they don't even wait for Snacker to get to them. They go to him and say, look, man, we're sorry. Here's all our stuff. Please don't kill us. <laughs> and so very quickly, <laughs> Hezekiah is left by himself. Uh -oh. um, now, Snacker gets down to the Philistines. And around this time, Egypt shows up to help. Egypt, that broken reed that pierces the hand it's, it, it, it uh, leans on. And there's the, at the Battle of Alteca, uh, Snacker smashes the Egyptians. He then takes out the Philistines pretty quickly. Uh, Ekron does not, does not do well. And then Hezekiah is left alone. And Snacker proceeds to basically bulldoze almost all of Judah. So, so is this sort of coming up to Rabsheka? I think that's how you pronounce this is, the name. Yeah, Rabsheka, yeah. It's yeah. actually not a name. It's actually a title. Oh, um, it's, okay. It's the chief cupbearer is the official name. It's really what it is, is the kind of the, the chief of staff for Sennacherib. So there's, there's three main, um, main officials, and everybody in the Assyrian king, uh, bureaucracy was a military commander. Um, the Rabsheka was kind of like the chief of staff or grand vizier. 
the, the guy that you went to to get to the king. There was the Rob Saris, who was the chief of princes. He was kind of in charge of the king's household, um, particularly the harem. He was probably also a eunuch. Uh, and then there was the Tertanu, who was the military commander in chief. So the Rabshaka is, again, he's the, he's the grand, he's the chief of staff. And he goes to Judah or to Jerusalem by now. Um, and he tells Hezekiah, just give up. Like, you know, just give up. We'll let you, we'll let you go. Keep in mind though, meanwhile, meanwhile, while he's doing this, Sennacherib is again, bulldozing Judah. Uh, he sacks Lachish and in his palace, which you can see in the British Museum. If you go to the British Museum's website, you can, you can look at him. He has in his throne room plastered on the wall, this massive relief or uh, mural of him sacking Lachish. Forewarning, it is graphic, very graphic. So, you know, just going with that caution, but it is, it is worthwhile to take a look at. Snackham says he destroys 46 walled cities and countless um, hamlets that he raises. And we can trace this archeologically. Um, in the region on uh, the border regions of Judah, there is a layer of ash almost uniformly, um, sometimes as much as like a meter thick or, or more that we trace to 701. Like it's just everywhere. And it's, a, it's this anchor point because Snackers went through and flattened it, burned it all. Um, actually recently at the site of Aze Ka, um, this, is somewhat a more, this is somewhat morbid, but it's interesting. They found, I believe this is 701. It might actually be Nebuchadnezzar, but I'm going to say it's 701. And if someone corrects me, that's fine. Um, they found uh, a, about a, tw a 12-year-old girl in a, in a house that was destroyed in this invasion um, where the Syrians had pulled a, basically pulled the house down on top of her. Um, it, was, it was brutal. Um, they found tons and tons of bodies from La at Lachish. Uh, this is back in the 30s when they first dug there. Uh, estimates are that, the, that this region, the border regions of Judah, was depopulated by about 70%. Um, now, archaeological... It, it, I mean, it's unbelievable, like the how thorough Sennacher was. Now, interestingly, and this is going to be something to keep in mind for the what we talk about in Isaiah after this week's lessons, because what comes after the middle part of Isaiah is a lot of hopeful talk about restoration and rebirth and all of that. Is that um, now the you, the thinking used to be that this just knocked Judah down for decades. Yeah. And, and in some places, that's true. Like there are plenty of villages that were gone and that was it. They never came back. But more recent archaeological evidence has shown that Judah actually bounced back within probably about five to 10 years remarkably well. Much better than it should have. Um, so I, that's something for, I think, uh, for listeners to keep in mind for the rest of uh, reading Isaiah is that what, most of what comes after, and again, it's not necessarily in chronological order, but what comes after this Keep in mind when you think of that rebirth, like what they're coming back from, what they're needing to have restored. Um, so massive destruction. Isaiah 1 talks, describes Jerusalem as a hut in a cucumber patch. That was very accurate because Jerusalem was pretty much all that was left. And something that we have to keep in mind, and this is something that the ancient Judahites misinterpreted, is that the miraculous um, sir, uh, deliverance of Jerusalem was in no way a victory for Judah. Judah lost and lost badly. This, they were, the Jerusalem was miraculously saved. 
But I think if you ask a person from Judah who didn't live in Jerusalem, their interpretation of what happened, they probably wouldn't look at it as a miracle or some grand gesture by Yahweh because they would have been, they would have lost everything. Um, Jerusalem was miraculously spared. And this is true. Snackrib says he locked Hezekiah up like a bird in a cage, but specifically never mentions that he conquered Jerusalem. Uh, Herodotus talks about this as well, kind of, sort of. Um, now, Herodotus' interpretation, which it's Herodotus, so take it with a major grain of salt, is that uh, it was actually mice that came in and ate all the bowstrings of the Assyrians. And that's what stopped them. And they were like, well, shoot, we can't fight anymore, so let's just go home. Mice, angel of Yahweh, something, something happened. And Sennacherib left and went home. Now, keep in mind, Hezekiah never raised a sword against Sennacherib again um, and seems to have been a very good vassal the rest of, of, his, of his time. And uh, Sennacherib would reign for another 20 or so years. So kind of one last thing, I think we're going to transition here kind of towards the end and the end of the Assyrian Empire is uh, Sennacherib's relationship with, with Babylon. So something Lesson talked about a little bit, which I – and I have the utmost respect for Roy Gain, but I think I kind of disagree with him on is the interpretation of the destruction of Babylon that's prophesied, um, you know, kind of the, the wild and waste. Because Babylon was actually, from Isaiah's time on to my knowledge, only destroyed once. And that was by Sennacherib himself. So this was something that Isaiah saw happen in his own lifetime. As I think I said before, Babylon was a perpetual thorn in Sennacherib's side. He would campaign against it six times in his career. Towards the end of his, his, of his reign, um, Sennacherib placed one of his sons, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, on the throne of Babylon. And he would rule for about six years. Something else to note about Sennacherib is that Sennacherib never took the title king of Babylon. So from Sargon on, he is the only, he's the only Assyrian king never to take the title king of Babylon, um, which kind of shows how much he hated Babylon. So Sennacherib puts his son on the throne. His son reigns for about six years as kind of his, his regent king in Babylon. And then the Babylonians form an alliance with the Elamites, who are from southern Iran. And they abduct Sennacherib's son, take him back to Elam, and he disappears from the record after that which basically means he was murdered. To say that Sennacherib did not take this well would be a massive understatement. Sennacherib spends the next two years going absolutely scorched earth on the Elamites and the Babylonians. And it culminates in 689 BC, so this is about 12 years after his invasion of Judah, Sennacherib utterly destroys Babylon. Now, archaeologically, I don't know if we have it, have his destruction layer Babylon trace or not, but we do have his description, which again, hyperbolic exaggeration. But what he describes is he describes how he one how he piled up the corpses like wood, basically in the squares of the city and that he didn't spare anyone young, old mad woman, none of it. He smashed all their idols. He, he took, he tore down their temples, their palaces, their ziggurats, their walls brick by brick down to the foundations. And then according to him, he reroutes the river Euphrates and floods the city. 
And he uses the word like the deluge. Now, uh, we have to keep in mind that in Assyrian and Babylonian mythology, we have a flood story as well. Basically, he's saying, I went biblical on them. <laughs> like, I went full-on flood story on Babylon. And he concludes his statement by saying, I left it like a meadow in a field so that no one would know it had ever existed. That, I think, is what Isaiah is talking about when he talks about Babylon's comeuppance or Babylon's destruction. And I think it's a critique to Hezekiah saying, this is what's going to happen to your ally. Don't, don't, make, keep, don't be making these alliances. It's not going to work out. Now, Esarhaddon, Sennacherib's son, um, rebuilds Babylon, and it's a, it's a whole thing. It's probably a terrible idea in retrospect. But given that Babylon was kind of like the cultural and religious center of the ancient of the Mesopotamian world, Sennacherib's destruction of Babylon was not exactly the most uh, popular decision. Um, as much as we can understand his reasoning, it, it didn't go over well. Um, and so Esarhaddon kind of found as many ways as he could to make it okay for him to undo what his father had done and rebuild the city of Babel, which he does. This would come back to bite the Assyrians about 50 years later when the Babylonian, excuse me, when the Babylonians once again would ally with the Elamites and this time they would defeat the Assyrians. And so kind of one of the great um, dramatic moments in history is how the Assyrian empire went from literally controlling the entire known world to less than 15 years later, gone forever from history. Um, and so Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar in 612 BC, sacks Nineveh. And he does to Nineveh exactly what Sennacherib had done to Babylon. And he caps it off by taking dust or dirt from the temple of Asher and placing it in the temple of Marduk. It's kind of the ultimate, we got you. It was something, what Sennacherib did to Babylon was something that the Babylonians never forgave or forgot. And so, you know, just overnight, the Babylonians went from, or the Assyrians went from the greatest empire in human history at the time, ruling the entire world to gone. And Assyria never, ever returned in any way, shape or form. And so that, that is kind of the, the history of the Assyrian empire, um, especially as it relates to Isaiah. Again, you know, with Sennacherib's invasion kind of being the, the crux point, like all, everything kind of built up to that moment. And then but the rest of Isaiah is kind of living in the aftermath of a, of a Judah that's destroyed, uh, of watching the rest of their allies get destroyed, like Babylon in particular, um, and just trying to kind of pick up the pieces, but offering a message of hope that it was going to be okay. Like Yahweh was going to see them through. He was, they were going to be able to rebuild. They were going to come back. And as much as devastating as Snackup's invasion was, it wasn't permanent. There was going to be a, so to speak, resurrection. And again, it's something that not only does it have eschatological meaning for us today, but we can also take, I think, a great faith in the eschatological interpretation because the in-the-moment interpretation happened. Yeah. They saw Judah being rebuilt back to almost what it was before Snacker came within their own lifetimes. Hey, John, I want to hold up for just a second because um, I, I think there's just, I mean, this is just so rich. And first of all, 
But one of the things that I'm, I'm hearing, I think I'm hearing you say, um, is here's this trust on, uh, in political alliances and the danger of politics. Uh, and here's Isaiah kind of warning about this, right? And, and so this seems to not be just a recent phenomena or challenge within uh, Christianity. This is, a, this is an ancient challenge. Am I, am I hearing that right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, it is, we do have to take it kind of a little bit careful. This is definitely Isaiah's, Isaiah's I believe, inspired interpretation of events. Um, right. But it is something, because there are times where we do have alliances that don't seem to be a problem. But for sure. the most part, yes, I, you know, I think relying on worldly power and force. Uh, something to keep in mind, I think, is particularly Hezekiah's relationship with the city of Ekron. Mm-hmm. So the city of Ekron was ruled by a guy named Padi, who was a faithful servant to the Assyrians. Um, he was probably profiting off of it. And he was also probably not wanting to poke the bear. And so much like how we talked about how uh, Reason and Pika uh, weren't going to take no for an answer with Judah when they were trying to form their alliance against the Assyrians, Hezekiah wasn't going to take no for an answer from Ekron. And so he attacked Ekron. Uh, with the help of some of the the local elites that were probably not profiting in the way that Potty was. And they took Potty prisoner back to Jerusalem. Something that Sennacherib talks about is that he um, he forced Hezekiah to release Potty and he set Potty back up on the throne of Ekron. And as a result of their treachery, he executed the entire nobility of Ekron, uh, brutally executed them. Um, and so what we see here is kind of reading between the lines. And this is, this is something that Isaiah talks about a lot. All the prophets talk about it a lot is the use of force, coercion, and violence for political means and gain. And this is something we see Hezekiah exercising where it's, he's exercising this coercive force to make people his allies that maybe don't want to be. And, I, and Isaiah's like, dude, what are you doing? This is not Okay. And so it is a cautionary tale of making alliances with people who aren't, who aren't on the same page with us, who have different theological motivations and goals. And I think we have to be careful making any kind of absolute judgments on okay. that. But, of course, yeah. you know, relying on, uh, to put it in modern, to cast it in modern terms, relying on a political party, whether the right or the left, you know, Democrat or Republican, you know, throwing in our lot with that, with one side or the other as them being the ticket to establish what we want, whether some values on the Republican side that Christians resonate with and on the, on, on the Democrat side, where it's like, we're going to, you know, we're going to use political means to enact the kingdom of God. And again, you could argue both sides for that. Um, you know, making those kinds of alliances with political parties, with, uh, companies and businesses, or really any kind of the, any kind of these alliances that are going to uh, where we're relying on earthly powers with earthly goals, earthly motivations, earthly desires that are going to be divergent from ours as Christians. And you know, this is this is ultimately what Isaiah's Isaiah's railing against is he's saying, look, these are not. Their, their goals are not the same as Yahweh's. They're, where they're going, where they're wanting is not the same as what Yahweh wants. 
Okay. So if you try to hitch your horse to them, you guys can't be going in two different directions and being hitched together. Like it's going to pull you down the wrong path and you can't. And again, as much as, you know, setting aside the conquest for a moment, that's a long discussion. One of the general themes of the Bible is that you can't force people to go the direction Yahweh wants them to go. And so what's going to happen is either you're going to coerce people into following Yahweh, which is bad, or you're going to be pulled away from Yahweh, which is also bad. There's no real win here with these kinds of alliances. And I think it's something we have to be cautious of and be cognizant of uh, today. Again, it doesn't mean we don't work with people. It doesn't mean we're not good, you know, neighborly people, but it's, we do need to keep a, be very mindful of what we're doing, where we're going and where we're being pulled. Well, I love this, John. And uh, I think, you know, as our listeners, you know, for me, I just learned a lot as well, you know, just kind of giving a little bit more of that information and context from archaeology. And I'm putting you on the spot here, but is there one or two resources that if somebody doesn't know very much about the archaeology of this time period in the Old Testament, uh, where would one start? Maybe there's a, a key source or a tool that uh, someone wanting to learn more as a Bible student, uh, what would you recommend as a kind of an intro Oh my, uh, so many. Um, <laughs> so particularly for, uh, for the Assyrians, I think sure, okay. one of the best places to start um, is uh, Karen Radner um, in the Oxford. I don't, I'm certain, Michael, you're familiar with the very short introduction series. Uh-huh. So Karen Radner's uh, very short introduction to Assyria is a okay. great place to start. All right. Um, and that will, that will have a, a you know, read that bibliography, look in that bibliography, that will get you to a mm-hmm. whole bunch of other places. But that's a great just foot in the door introduction to Assyria, into the history of Assyria, what they were about, their geography, their culture, their values, stuff like that. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's a fantastic place uh, to start is, is that one. Um, it's a bit dated. Um, let's see. Archaeology and the Land of the Bible from 10,000 to 586 BCE by Amahai Mazar. Okay. It's A-M-I-H-A-I. That's a good place to start. Um, uh, for people who, want, who are a little maybe more scholarly inclined, uh, who want maybe uh, something that's definitely written more for um, the in-the-know academic crowd. Not sure how else to put that. Uh, the the world around the Old Testament. Uh, it's edited by uh, Bill Armel, Bill Arnold, and Brett Strawn, and that's a fantastic resource just to have uh, because it 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 basically goes culture by culture of the people around uh, around Israel and Judah. So you get Ammon, Moab, Edom, Assyria, obviously Babylon, Egypt, um, and a whole bunch of other things. And it just has fantastic resources if you want to. If you want to study, study more. Um, let's see. Uh, this is great. I, and by the way, for those listening, we'll put some uh, links in the show notes so that uh, those of you that are listening can find these resources. Absolutely. We will. Let's see. And um, as a general archaeology reference, I'm just going to reference this probably every time I talk about it. Life in Biblical Israel by Philip King and uh, Lawrence Steger. 
Uh, it's not going to talk much about Assyria or any of this, but it just it's a great introduction into the world of the Bible and what life was like. I mean, the, the title is very accurate, Life in Biblical Israel. Uh, and uh, one I, a, a resource I like um, is A History of the Ancient Near East by uh, Mark Vandermeerop. It's kind of a textbook, but it's uh, it gives a good outline of the history of the, uh, mostly focusing on Mesopotamia uh, from basically the invention of writing all the way down uh, to the rise uh, to the, to Alexander the Great. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. Um, you know, as you were speaking, especially right before here, talk about not aligning ourselves with left, right. It doesn't matter, but making sure we're aligning ourselves with God. I'm, I'm reminded of Isaiah 37, I think that's where Hezekiah prays his prayer and he realigns himself with uh, Yahweh uh, per Isaiah's instructions. And after he does that, we see that's where God intervenes. And I think it's so important to see that and I'm glad to hear theology, archaeology, all of it coming together to say that's what God was calling them to do. And that's what God is calling us to do uh, even today. So I really appreciate you for that. Absolutely. Yes. Well, John, I want to say a special thank you for joining us on this special bonus archaeological episode of Sabbath School Rescue. So we're going to put a wrap for this week uh, of this episode. So this is Soup. And Swoops, signing out. Signing out. As we put a wrap on this week's lesson, this is Campbell Swoops, signing off. By the way, we want to give a shout out to our sponsors, the Southwestern Union of Seventh-day Adventists and Southwestern Adventist University, which has for over 125 years provided a Christ-centered education just 20 minutes south of Fort Worth, Texas. We love teaching with personal colleagues, offer quality academics, and provide numerous ways to get involved both on campus and across the globe. To learn more, visit swahu.edu or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Also, be sure to join us again next week as we continue to explore God's Word. You can make sure not to miss an episode by joining us at sabbathschoolrescue.org.